listeners, welcome back to Trash and Treasures, where we watch the movies other people throw away. My name is Vry, and with me, as always, is Dorothy. Hello! And it is the end of October, and our specialty horror batch on erotic horror, horny horror. This episode's going to be sexual horror. (laughs) That'll do. This episode's going to be a little bit different from our usual one. You know, a lot of our purview is... Movies we find interesting that people maybe didn't necessarily give a critical eye to. And then every once in a while we do a beloved cult classic and people get mad at us. We don't always hate them. It just requires a slightly different approach. Because a lot of people who are going to listen to this are already familiar with the film in question. So we're going to be less focused on beat-by-beat plot recap and more on kind of history and context stuff. If you've heard our episode on The Thief and the Cobbler, something like that. So 1971's The Devils. (sighs) Good, good. You've set us off on a good foot. This is fairly well known among people who watch art film or are interested in transgressive film, media policies around film, banning and censorship. Yeah, it is in many ways a very important film because it is a movie that to this day arguably still doesn't exist in its full original cut. Because of the alleged scene. Mm -hmm. There is a British Film Institute two-disc Blu-ray that came out in 2011. It's supposed to be the complete edition and it has a bunch of fancy special features. And I believe that that is the version we watched because this film isn't in print in America, so we looked up the archive.org edition of it uh, that's been archived. And it is still missing one scene that we know exists, because clips of it have been shown in other supplemental material around the film. So even the big fancy, um, 40 years later edition- Unexpurgated uh version is expurgated. So there is a reason that- people really still that people still talk about this film 50 years later it's turning 50 next year yeah uh guillermo del toro actually was noted for publicly speaking out about warner brothers apparently having a completely unexpurgated cut and still not releasing it in many ways because of its status as a censored film it can be kind of hard to talk about it because censorship bad censorship bad but also the fact that it is the subject has been subject to censorship makes a lot of people hear criticism towards it as, oh, you're just trying to mm-hmm. stifle art. When I think that, I hope that our audience is used to us sort of more picking at the structural aspects yeah. of works. I'm not saying this should be censored. Vry is still very sad that they haven't been able to get the full cut. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, and I, I do want to kind of nod towards what makes this film not just important in a historical sense, but also An really work. Yeah, like in terms of its political commentary, its anti-religious commentary. It's got Jarmusch's production design, which is gorgeous. And, and even if you didn't know Jarmusch was involved, you'd know. You just look at it and you're like, ah. This you look is, at that opening scene and you're like, ah, this is very Jarmushy. But because there is so much on that, we also don't want to spend the entire podcast going over those things that dozens of critics before us have been talking about for decades. So we decided that aside of touching on those things, we really want to talk about the role the portrayal of women takes in this movie, which is a lot. 
I think we do need some historical context in the sense that we need to establish that this is historical fiction. Yes. All right. So buckle up. We are in for one of our bona fide historical roller coasters. So this purports to be the story of some events that happened in Ludon, where a mass possession event happened in a nunnery. And a guy, Grandier, was executed as the witch who caused it. That is true. Well, for a given, you know, value of possession and witch. Right. There was a large mass event. A man named Grandier was executed. And the event was described as possessions Mm -hmm. of these nuns. Culturally, that's what it was at the time. We can also say that it is true that he definitely didn't cast spells and bewitch these nuns. That Mm -hmm. is definitely not true. Because that's not a thing. And it has been documented that there was some level of political motivation. Right. Uh, This man was definitely in the way of some church and political officials, uh, notably Cardinal Richelieu. The Three Musketeers bad guy. You know, Tim Curry. Yep. And so he became this political scapegoat and this mass possession was a very handy way to get him out of the way. However, this is not a film about those historical events. This is a film... That is dramatizing a book that was a historical fiction book based on those events. And this is a movie that is specifically using those events to talk about other things. Yes, the book in question that it is based off of is The Devils of Ludon by Aldous Huxley, which I truly had every intention of reading and reporting back to you on. But and then you Huxley? Yeah, I made it ten pages before I remembered that I really fucking hate Aldous Huxley with every bone of my body. <laughs> Just so much. I hate his <laughs> writing sc- style. I hate his structure of argument. I cannot read his work. I'm sorry, I did not do this diligence for you. But we did a lot of other diligence. We did quite a lot of reading. Um, I was already somewhat familiar with the case. Dorothy has this magnificent book called The Encyclopedia of Witchcraft and Demonology, which was originally printed in 1959. So it would have been available as a source. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Not that I'm saying that they were in any way obligated to do that. But, but And the reason we looked so much into the historical context, partly Dorothy just knew it because she's interested in witch trials and that kind of stuff, but also a lot of what I went out and read that is writing on the film and the censorship of the film, including a 2002 documentary uh, called Hell on Earth, The Desecration and Resurrection of the Devils, which was shown on BBC right after a supposedly restored version of the film, again, who knows how much, which, by the way, was presented by Mark Kermode, who is a famous British critic. He still works for um, Sight and Sound and The Observer today. Okay, this is a mean thing for me to say, but I I found it really hard to watch that because of Kermode's voice. It's not a bad voice. No, his voice is fine, but the cadence and accent is so specific that we realized, oh my god, it's Garth Marenghi. Or rather, Garth Marenghi clearly sounds exactly like him. It is that moment when you realize, oh, that's what this is a very specific thing about. Yeah, that I was not aware of as a dumb American. So it's hosted by this very prominent critic and both that documentary and a more definitive book that I actually really want to maybe try and get hold of and read more of. I was only able to read maybe a quarter of it because of Google Books. Right. From 2012 called Raising Hell, Ken Russell and the Unmaking of the Devils, 
they both treat Huxley's book as this very ironclad historical fact in the way they frame it and then proceed to talk about the film as, well, they say this is all outre stuff, but look, it's based on these actual historical events. And that's true to an extent, but they sort of push on it as this exactingly historical document that just has these stylistic flourishes on top. So it felt worth pushing back against that. Yes, because actual accounts of the events, which had records kept of it because it was an inquisitorial process and they needed paperwork and evidence, even if that was bullshit. The church needed evidence, just like the church needs evidence of lots of things, even if it's bullshit. (laughs) Right. You have to leave a paper trail, even if you are coming to bullshit conclusions. Yeah. Shows that there are distinct differences in the sequence of events from what was portrayed in this film. And specifically, this film and before it, Huxley's book, essentially recentered the motivation of this entire interaction as a delusional accusation made by a specific horny nun that fomented this whole situation. Jean Sister da- Jean des Anges. Yet she was just so horny for this guy she never met that she contrived to have him brought down by accusing him of being an incubus. Yeah. Women. Am I right? So yeah, basically sort of the plot as such is that in the film she gets pissed off that he won't become her Ursuline nun order's confessor and so she accuses him of witchcraft and then then turns into sort of a spreading hysteria which is also a sexual liberation for all of the nuns in her order because to be possessed is to have a certain license to misbehave and she does regret it fairly quickly, but that by that point... It's already gone too far. And also, Grandier is specifically pushing back against the destruction of Ludon's outer walls. And so by getting rid of him, it, the city, which is supposed to be this uh, independent little township, can be incorporated under Louis Thirteenth's rule. Yeah. And so that's a political motivation. Mm-hmm. In addition... Grandier had also pissed off a lot of other people in the city because he was a horny motherfucker. That is known historical fact as well. Oliver Reed's curly mustache, according to Dorothy's witchcraft book, by the way, which has a a drawn image of Grandier, very accurate. So the movie is kind of trying to make cases about sexual repression versus sexual liberation in a political system that benefits from the ramifications of both of those. But it's making shit up is my problem with it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's making shit up in a motivated fashion. In a way that's also extremely incurious about the women it is supposedly centering around. It's a movie that's talking about misogyny. But that misogyny and oppression and violence is serving as window dressing for a weirdly straightforward redemptive story. Right. About this dude. Which is another weird thing, because Oliver Reed does give a genuinely great performance here. In that 2012 book, there is this fantastic anecdote about, first of all, Oliver Reed used to call Ken Russell Jesus, (laughs) which is, they clearly had a whole relationship. Yeah, I mean, Um, mean, Ken Russell's Catholic. So Reed and Russell had this 
sort of language worked out because they had worked together on so many films where where Reed ha- would say, give me Moody 1 or Moody 2. And those were like shorthands for the type, for like the scale of performance he wanted to set Reed off to doing, <laughs> which which I find kind of charming. He really does, as much as it plays into the kind of fucked gender norm stuff that ends up being encoded into this film, Reed does have this kind of, he's a fucker, but there is pathos there. I think what frustrates me is that so much of Reed's performance is devoted to essentially presenting him as a modern man trapped in this backwater world as though he has no responsibility to nor familiarity with his own social norms. Mm-hmm. It's very weird. Yeah. And I mean, there's He's so like much. the only sane man and there's so much abjection of everyone else in the film. It's so Brechtian almost. And yet at the same time, Russell talked about you know, Jarmusch's city design as I want this to look clean and stark and modern, not medieval and shitty, because that is the mindset of the people who were in it. Right. Because everything looks modern to us now. But that feels almost even more creating that objection where the only one we would recognize as having modern motivations and thought processes is Grandier. And I even would buy a version of this film that is about local shithead makes good. And as soon as he's beginning to turn his life around gets fucked over by political machinations, but that's not really what this movie is. Well, and also the way in which he makes good is so pedestrianly conservative. Because, so the movie opens with a teenage girl, Philippa, in alienating makeup, but with her titties out. Of course. Telling Grandier just after they fucked that she's pregnant and scared and she wants him to help her. And he's basically like, get out, bitch. Mm-hmm. Sucks to be you. Wow, it sucks that God is doing this to you. Super sucks to be you. Gosh, I'm sad that this happens. And I will literally do nothing to help you in your trials because this is your problem. Now, Philippa was a real person. He actually did this too in the real life. And um, this kind of pissed off her father, his friend. Apparently this dude just boned his way through the women of the city. While and being the priest. Meanwhile, he's over here having his man pain about how, uh, the divine coupling and yet there is no transcendent emotion. I'm like, fuck off, dude. Yeah, because he's like actively hurting women through his interactions with them because they feel like they can trust him and like he has divine insight that they are not allowed because he is allowed to intercede with God and he's treating them as disposable because, well, they're sinners anyway. So he's having this sort of dark night of the soul, sad boy moments, but I don't give a shit. And then some random woman decides she wants to fuck him. And he's like, gosh, I guess I'll marry this one. Yeah, there is no sense of what makes her different or meaningful or who she is as a person, besides the fact that she is kind of pure onlooker to this situation who survives till the end. Like there is no interiority to her character or why this is what redeems his soul and makes him pursue an authentic relationship to God. And his authentic relationship to God is still localized in this sexual, this heterosexual, sexual monogamous interaction with this one woman. Oh yes, because queerness is very deviant in this movie. It was very useful for finding other sources, but I found a hilarious write-up for the uh, Fiction and Film for Scholars of France, a cultural bulletin written by a scholar, Daryl D. from... Wilfrid Laurier University that was very interesting as far as pointing out historical details and some other 
readings that I ended up looking into and that we read for this podcast. But it does have this one moment that's completely scandalized at the idea that this film would portray Louis the Thirteenth as an homosexual. <clears throat> this doesn't that I'm aware of. Like that's the other thing. He's definitely coded mm-hmm. as this grotesque evil queer who's who's gigglingly evil. He's portrayed as a pedophile, but that's different. Yeah, there's almost something there in the film's attempt to make him this kind of outsider rationalist viewpoint who is mocking all of this church pageantry and plain manipulation wrapped in piousness except that he's a pedophile though and also it's clearly demonizing him because he's not separate from this he's benefiting from it and he is truly the bad guy who's picking on this guy who has suddenly figured out the true bonerific uh, importance of marriage is the empty box scene not the best moment in the entire film? That is funny as hell. But anyway. <laughs> it occurs to us that perhaps we should give content warnings for this very content warning heavy film. Yep. Religious abuse, torture, rape, ableism, so much ableism. Pedophilia, as mentioned, a lot of full frontal nud- nudity. Of the ladies. No, no, there's some dong. But mostly the ladies. Mostly the ladies. Smooching on Christ. Yes. So blasphemy. I mean, that's obvious. Yeah, this is a f- film criticizing Catholicism. Blasphemy as far as the eye can see. It's kind of beautiful. A lot of death and disease, uh, medical abuse. Possibly could be considered rape fetish. And just some general ooky body horror stuff because, you know, she, in the first dream sequence, she licks the uh, stigmata. Yep. Sister Jean's repression is cre- is treated as the touch point for this sequence of events, which made them exploitable by the church. Vanessa Redgrave, by the way, worth seeing this film for. She sure is doing something. Yep, she is. Um, They configure her as this grotesquely hideous hunchbacked nun, and they go out of their way to mention that all of these nuns are like the ugly daughters of their families, that nobody wants to fuck or marry. And there is commentary by, I believe it was Russell, you know, about how these are just women who are bored and repressed, Mm -hmm. basically. That is the entire thought put into the fomenting of all of this. Yeah. And on the surface, it's trying to be compassionate about that. It's, Mm -hmm. It's not saying that they are wrong for being repressed and in this unfair situation. Right. It's just, this is how they also are victims of this repressive Catholic system. But including the threat of, you know, being put to death if they don't conform under the cultural construct. However, actual accounts of the events indicate that the start of the possession event involved a completely different nun seeing their recently dead of the plague former spiritual advisor as an apparition. And that it wasn't until like over a week of questioning that suddenly somebody started talking about Father Grandier. Because after a week of questioning from the Inquisition, you say whatever the fuck they want you to say. Yeah. So this did not originally start as that. Uh, We read this absolutely marvelous article by um, Moshe Sluhovsky. Yes. That I wish we could get for you, but they don't fuck around with that and we don't want to be arrested (laughs) because it's a JSTOR article. Yeah, it's on JSTOR. It's on a few other sites as well, so you may be able to find it, but... I can't distribute it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's from 2002 and it's called 
the devil's in the convent. It's not about this film specifically. It kind of includes the Ludon possessions and a bunch of other events from similar time periods as a study of mass possessions among women. And it is this really, really interesting historical article about mass possession events and specifically often the ones that didn't result in witchcraft accusations and how these moments of possession were sometimes normalized. People carried on their lives with them. a cultural event Mm -hmm. that sometimes happens. And also were these ways that women in the church could speak, as it were. And could voice ideas contra to whatever was happening in their order. Notably, many times these mass possession events would occur when an order went from open to cloistered or changed their structure or had a new leader with harsher rules. And so the nuns there would be feeling that they were being treated unfairly, essentially. And Loudon, in fact, at the time of this event had switched its order to cloistered and had been sort of enforced into a cloistered situation due to the recent plague. They were quarantining. Everybody was fucking bored. <laughs> Which I think I think my friends can understand. <laughs> There's also this fascinating quote in this article about where the author is talking about a case in Nuremberg in the 1420s where there was this new spiritual director who was really really harsh on this on this open convent. The convent fell into disorder and the nuns split between reformed and unreformed sisters with the latter resisting the intrusion by the observant nuns who joined their community and the restrictive reforms that the new nuns brought with them. The devil's attacks on the nuns started shortly after the reform and tellingly, it was the unreformed nuns who were tormented. Nider's early attempts to convince them to commend themselves to God and to adopt the new lifestyle failed and the nuns did not hesitate to confront him. When will we regain our former unrestricted freedom? It was only after the devil increased his attacks on the nuns and tormented them day and night that the recalcitrant nuns surrendered their arrogance, accepted the reform, and the enemy disappeared. Another notable thing that's discussed in this article is that possession, visions, and mysticism were all heavily entwined in these orders. In many of these uh, orders with heavily meditation-based practices, mystic nuns had a function and and experienced visions and interpretation, which culturally was taken to be from God. So Mm -hmm. one of the rhetorical and dialogic things that happened when unnatural events started happening in a nunnery was that first you had to figure out who was sending these visions, who is interacting with these nuns. Is it God or the devil? Many times these events would have started with a vision of your former confessor or Jesus or Mary. And it was only after diagnosis by other individuals in the church that that determination was made, whether it was the devil deceiving you, in which case often the possession would then progress to these violent sexual and blasphemous acts, Mm -hmm. or whether it was God stepping in and communing yeah and it wasn't inherently seen as sinful on the nuns parts to be tormented in this way either interestingly enough because of the fact that sometimes it was presented as the devil must be tormenting these nuns because they are so holy there are scenes in this movie out of context that i think work in that sense where you know you have 
Sister Jean's first vision where she sees Grandier as a Christ figure and those kinds of things. And some of the scenes of the nuns after the possession where all, they're all just hanging out and much happier in this possessed state. Yeah. But I don't think you can even charitably say that the film is situating this as an act of the women's active rebellion and finding freedom through this because of the way it frames them so pervasively. You know, the first we see of them is as these kind of giggling, bored, almost schoolgirl-esque women. I think it's definitely trying to evoke the feeling of uh, boarding school films from Britain in, you know, the the 40s. Mm -hmm. Also, the way that this film uses queerness among the nuns, lol. (laughs) So many gays escape to the convent, and this movie acts as though they have only discovered this when they are play-acting innocently heterosexuality pretending that they might be married to grandier someday or post 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 rape of christ possession and it's just because this movie has no sense of of these women's sexuality outside of the hysterical frenzy and i feel hysteria is a relevant word here yeah and i'm sure that russell thought he was saying something about how these women's sexuality could only be expressed in this hysterical context, but it lacks depth or empathy. Even the And there's there's things like a forcible enema scene. Yeah, that that is a horrifying scene, and it is clearly supposed to be horrifying. Right. But and which Sister Jean experiences, but the immediate reaction from the other nuns is to start acting out and trying to get penetrated. Yeah, even more horrifying because Redgrave is playing it for what it is. It's a rape. Yeah. And there, you know, the the enema is even foamy and white colored, and it's yeah, not very it's, subtle. <laughs> it's not subtle, no. And, and it's but, performed by these Gilliam-esque freaks. It's very. I mean, they are also threatened with being burned to death if they don't submit to the to this narrative. Mm-hmm. But, but also, again, the subtext is one of those things that builds on itself such that it over time shuts out charitable readings. It also doesn't help that. In that 2002 documentary that we watched, there is discussion of the the set, specifically for The Rape of Christ, which is this famous centerpiece that was expurgated for the film for a long, long time and was recovered specifically for this 2002 documentary and restored. It's really not. I mean, it's gross, but it's not shocking. Like, it is a mass orgy, as it were, that also Where somebody humps a crucifix. Mm Mm-hmm. And rapes one of the priests. Yeah. Like, it's... I guess for 1971, you know, it's... Yeah. It's shocking. But nowadays, it's just... It's a lot, but it's not shocking. It's also shocking in a very socially Christian way. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, it's that secular Christianity thing. Some of the the crash zooms are very funny. (laughs) (laughs) So all of the characters... All of the actresses playing nuns are, you know nude and gyrating and this gets leaked to the press and the result of this which the documentary mentions very offhandedly is they fire one of the actors because they think maybe because of her her husband leaked the news news about the nude shooting to the press and this is a terrible crime because this is what started people to turn against this film before it was even completed it's sort of the take of a lot of these men who are involved in making it they find one of the women who played one of the uh, who they played find a, a nun, couple of them who seemed all right with it and good for them 
There were other women, though. One of the women, the, the blonde lady, mm. specifically said that she felt unsafe on set because the male extras were groping them. And this was sort of dismissed as they're getting a bit too into it. And one guy bragged that he used to blow a hairdryer on their titties to keep them warm as they left set. Another of the women was like, oh, he didn't do that for me. He must have been distracted by the actresses with bigger boobs. I'm sure... There are lots of people who would like an excuse to blow a hairdryer on people's boobs. It's the opposite of the ice, though. <laughs> this represents a rejection <laughs> of the patriarchy. <laughs> and I don't, we're not here to say, and this means that the film is not important or d isn't saying some things about Catholic repression. Clearly this film hit a nerve if it's still banned 50 years later. I mean, Dogma came out 25 years after this and Kevin Smith got a brick thrown through his window and it is a much warmer film. Yeah. <laughs> All things yeah. considered. But I do think there was sort of a stark difference between how the actresses remember those events mm -hmm. versus the men on the production staff. Right. And I think that I think that is also relevant when you talk about the history of this film is are, what do we downplay as acceptable for the sake of great art by this great auteur director? Yeah, and like, what is the actual lived experience of the humans who are enacting these right. moments? Are you reinscribing trauma or are you causing those, those same damages? It's like how female stunt actors and stunt actors who perform as female characters are much more likely to get injured, not because of a lack of skill, but because so many female character designs in action films involve clothing that does not hide any place to put padding or safety gear. So the way, what you're doing and what you're filming does have an effect on an actual physical body. Or, you know, in, in another sense, it's like what we talked about with The Thief and the Cobbler, where, you know, he is this great auteur making his perfect vision. And that is kind of the narrative that gets sold with that as this tragic lost film that was never finished. And meanwhile, you have all these very talented animators who worked for years on these beautiful cuts and were just yeah. told to throw them away yeah, or never even got to put them in their reels. Yeah, and worked until their deaths. Because he it couldn't had... stop. That's not the problem with this film, but... No, but it but... sort of speaks to this larger culture of great art and especially great lost art yeah and collaborative art involves more people than just the ones who necessarily get credit for it mm -hmm. for the execution so much of this film is pinned on redgrave and her experience because she's the central female figure in it and she look i i think she's great but it's also a lot <laughs> she is giving a very scenery chewing performance she is definitely doing some shrieky, deranged lady stuff. Mm -hmm. And she also, I think, she doesn't speak to trauma in the clips we have seen of her, but also she also she has to do She's the least nudity and, like, the least putting of herself out there. Despite the rape scene. So that's saying a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so... She's clearly done a lot of character work and thought about this character and thought about levels to this character and ways that her motivations work and make sense. Yeah, listening to her talk about Jean as a character was really interesting. Yeah. Because she cared in the way that I don't think the movie cared. But what the movie's doing with repression and female sexuality is not necessarily what it thinks it's doing. It ultimately it amounts to sort of window dressing for this story of this great man's sad downfall. Which we should probably talk about as well because 
because this is a story about Grandier's sad downfall and he's kind of the one brave man who leads the people and without him the city falls metaphorically and literally and now it closes on the walls coming down and cart being wheeled out with the corpses in the broken city but his gender stuff is very much woven into that you know Oliver Reed is this guy who wound up working with Ken Russell because he hung around a lot with in the pubs and with brawlers and he has kind of this tough guy look he played a lot of teddy boys because he has this very brusque look and this very sort of high soft voice so when you cast him to be your central sex figure you have this ah he is this curly-haired manly man with this beautiful mustache and then around him you have these priests who have this sort of longer john lennon hair and they're very reedy looking you have louis the 13th who is queer coded to the max all of the aristocrats richelieu who's sort of this demonic figure of disability he's being wheeled around on a on a trolley so there's some things happening with the only really masculine man by our modern standards is surrounded by all these guys in dresses because their historical costumes are robes. And like you mentioned, um, Philippa at the beginning of the movie is the only one in fairly historically accurate face makeup because it alienates us from her and pushes the audience. does not give a shit about her, you know, pregnancy out of wedlock. And she's demonized at the end for being like, ha, fuck that guy. Mm -hmm. Holding her baby up to watch him be executed. But you know what? Fuck that guy. Honestly, fuck that guy. In the process of making it the story of one good man, the film doesn't seem to consider consciously. I genuinely think it it doesn't. The type of person it is saying is corrupt and complicit in this system. I think it is trying to say something about the aristocracy, you know, exploiting the, the little common man mm. and how he is a bad fit for his status in the church, but... I do really like this the plague scene very early on, where where he's ministering to people, mm-hmm. and he which w- was a real thing. That's a real thing Grandier did. He wasn't a historical monster. He was in the wrong place at the wrong fucking time. Well, and specifically, he walks in on a bunch of priests who are doing a um, an exorcism of a of a dying plague victim, rather than you know giving him comfort. And Grandier right. is not horrified. actually doing pastoral care. Yeah, I think that's uh, one of the moments when the movie really succeeds in being humanizing. I think that scene is also meant to be sort of a criticism of the Ursulines Mm. for being a cloistered order, whereas he's out there among the people interacting. But until a year or two before this event happened, the Ursulines were engaged in outreach. They were an open order who actively ministered to the poor. Which would be a great thing for this film to explore. This madness. is a recent change. Right. And this madness foments when they are no longer allowed to be among the people and doing God's work by their definition. Yeah. Like, that would be cool. And maybe it's something I'm more sensitive to this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fact that this is a a plague movie <laughs> is a quarantine a lot. movie. <laughs> but, like, I think it's meant to sort of juxtapose how he is doing the real work of Christ. And they're just sitting around being catty bitches, all horned up. And he is bringing Christ's dick to the people. Well, and of course, our one good woman who wants to join the Ursuline nuns until she does, in fact, get that dick. She only wants to join the Ursuline nuns to be protected from his magic dick that that causes her to feel so lustful. But she's saved from that by actually getting dicked down. Why? 
Why? He decides that he loves her, she but is, why? She is the one person who walks away from this film. Yeah, she's she's the survivor at the end because she is the one pure observer. Yeah, and I think she's like implicitly the person whose relationship with her sexuality is not divided. But like, what's going to happen to her now? She's probably pregnant. Her secret husband has been executed by the church. She's going to have to go somewhere and pretend to be a widow of somebody else and live in poverty. Considering how this film was received, maybe it is radical enough on its own that this film is basically suggesting no more than... Maybe we should be able to fuck if we love somebody. <laughs> like in a committed, monogamous, heterosexual relationship. Maybe fucking's okay. Yeah. But I, I feel like their relationship has a similar lack of foundation as the love triangle in um, The Children's Hour. Where it's like, okay, everybody's in love with Audrey Hepburn's character, but like, why? And normally you would say, well, because it's Audrey Hepburn. Except somehow that movie sucked all the soul out of Audrey Hepburn and I'm still not sure how it happened. Yeah. It's such a an ultimately frustrating film. I am glad that I watched it. I mentioned in our last episode that I've been wanting to watch this movie for a very long time. It's not currently legally available in the United States outside of that archive.org version. It was on Shudder for like a hot minute in 2018 or so and was almost immediately gone. I don't know what happened with that. I think it definitely feels very much of its era. Um, you know, just that sort of 70s wave of extreme experimental film. Caligula and Zardoz and everything Jarmusch did. The colors are beautiful. Jarmusch's sets are very interesting. There are a couple of scenes that I really like. It is, it is a film I feel sort of duty bound to respect in terms of it's 50 years later and I still can't imagine, like, I think my mother would die of shock if I showed her <laughs> even the non, the non-pornographic parts of this film. And, like, when I was a kid, I still haven't seen The Last Temptation of Christ, not because I don't want to, but just because it was so beaten into me as a child that that movie, 20 years later, was the most blasphemous thing on the face of the earth. And so now I'm just like, oh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's the heretical film. <laughs> <laughs> I saw The Passion of the Christ. I'm sorry. That one was upsetting. That one was bad. And I think it is trying to do some very interesting and sharp satire about how this culture is using this event and his, is mobilizing this violence like the, against him. The giant dossier scene where they have a giant library of files on everybody. Hello, Cold War commentary. Yeah. Like, I do think it's doing some genuinely interesting commentary on stuff, but the way these women's experiences are used, both the actresses and the historical people. If you are going to make a film about sex, you necessarily have to take into consideration gender. Like, you cannot divorce those two things and say, well, this is a good film about sex that, you know, treated the women on set really poorly, but overall, great sex film. I don't think you can separate that in, in the way that I think you can for some films that treat women or marginalized folks badly and aren't specifically about sexual relationships involving women. Yeah. So I think this is kind of a necessary conversation. And to be fair, I've only been looking into the the scholarly work on the devils for a couple of weeks. I'm sure someone has done a feminist breakdown of this before, <laughs> and we are not the first. We cannot possibly be. It's a 50-year-old film. And like I said, I think it was attempting to say some feminist things. I think there was an attempt and a move towards a feminist understanding of what it's saying. I think it just was not necessarily comprehensive or executed. And I think the feminist moves were made in service of this larger point about 
Poor Grandier. I don't think it was intentionally an anti-feminist film. Unlike Zardoz, Mm. which I would consider a pretty deliberately anti-feminist work. Definitely. Fight me. (laughs) We're not doing an episode of Zardoz because we'll just be bad. (laughs) I think Belladonna of Sadness is is a much more, well, it's a contemporaneous, even if it's a cross-cultural point of view where it's you know this rape revenge type story that spends a lot of time on how sexual assault is what leads her to freedom but it wants to be the story about how this liberated woman gains power through controlling her own sexuality by making a contract with the devil but it's a similar mythologizing of european history too Mm -hmm. in the service of this perspective it's almost reminds me of sort of a star hockey understanding of of witchcraft and sexual power shorthand for the listeners at home Starhawk is a um, a witch who has written, has written extensively about feminism and sort of the history of the church and feminine mysteries in Europe. A lot of Starhawk's work is not historically accurate, but she was sort of a leading feminist witchcraft figure for a lot of years. For certain groups interested in witchcraft, she also provides very good and interesting organizing principles, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that feels relevant because it's something where it's like there are interesting big ideas here, but it falls down in the history, which is something you can't ignore at a certain point. Yeah, because she is trying to historicize and mythologize and construct this alternate history of feminine power. While also maybe ignoring marginalized genders who aren't cis women? Yes. Um, now, Starhawk is is bisexual, from what I understand. Cool. But there is sort of this focus on witchcraft as feminine power in a very narrow cis sense. A lot of sort of binary ideas about um, the need to bring us back into balance. That was my experience with my brief attempt to dip my toe into Wicca in high school. How did you get away with that? Did your mom just never go into your room? Oh, I never actually bought any practice things. I just read a lot of books. Oh, yeah. No, I'm wondering how you got away with having the books. (laughs) Those Llewellyn Press books. (laughs) (laughs) But I think this is sort of this mythologizing of the history of witchcraft, which oppression of witches was very real. It was a very real thing. But in many ways, it's not necessarily the whole we're the daughters of the witches you failed to burn situation it's much more culturally situated and often was practiced as a way to disempower not just financially independent women which is often the canard and i noticed that that is a great way to say middle class white ladies are being hurt again but also as an excuse to go against people who in other ways disrupt the social order it wasn't just middle class white lady although it often was because yes the need to suppress disorderly feminine behaviors was one of the motivations, but it's also more than that. Yeah. I'm realizing we never actually mentioned what the, what the cut, what the still expurgated scene was. Well, yeah, because you get right to the end and it's still expurgated. (laughs) Again, based on actual historical fact, Grandier is subject to an auto de fe and then uh, executed publicly they had promised him that they would strangle him before burning him they but did they not. don't that really happened fuck yeah no the guy really burned to death that's horrifying yeah that one book has a facsimile of the receipt for the wood 
purchased for his burning <laughs> because the church keeps records of everything. Oh, yeah, they're real fuckers that way. <laughs> yeah, so the still expurgated scene is part of it survives in the finished film in that part of Grandier's thigh bone is delivered as a kind of last fuck you to a remorseful sister, Jean, who in a let who in a supposed scene then proceeds to masturbate with it. I know that this scene is real because they include the beginning of it in that documentary, but it's not in the version of the film we saw. It just yeah, it the, just closes. Right. The, the the bone gets thrown on the floor at her feet and the scene abruptly cuts. So even to this day, <laughs> the film is still not expurgated, which is fascinating because we think of, you know, we are a, a civilized Western nation and we are open to, to free artistic expression, USJW snowflakes, etc., 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 but, but no, you still can't watch this actual scene. Mm-hmm. This full fit, like whether or not you think the full film is effective or the film needs that scene or whatever, you can't watch it. And that's fucked up. Yeah. And it's bizarre. The actual events with these nuns uh, continued for a couple years. Yeah. And good for them. Frankly. They, they basically got a pension to put on regular exorcism shows. Until like, what, 1620 when the... When the church shut that down? No, this happened in 1634. Right. So I think maybe 1640 or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Grandier was executed in 1634. Sister Jeanne went on to, again, cont- to be a mystic nun and a visionary. Because, again, being possessed was not the same as being sinful, necessarily. You were under attack. So being possessed didn't mean they threw you out of the church as a sinful whore and woman. It's just very different culturally. Very different. Fascinating, frankly. Yeah, they put on regular possession shows, and I love that. I love this fact with all of my heart. They walked backwards on their hands. They they contorted. Good for them. <laughs> Until they had their pension pulled, and then they had to shut that whole thing down. They were like, oh. Well, I guess it's back to nunning. Yep. Guess we're going to be a cloistered order. Ooh. But yeah, fuck Huxley. Fuck Aldous Huxley, though. Fuck Hel- Aldous Huxley in specific, more than Russell. Uh-huh. Because, again, Russell was doing an adaptation of this book, and he was doing this. And I haven't seen enough of Russell's other works to make a really a comment on him as a director. I don't think that I would enjoy his treatment of women across the board. I suspect. But I don't know that. Like, from the set conditions that he created for these women, I suspect there's a lot of other uncomfortable stuff in his work, but I don't know. But Aldous Huxley, him I know, and fuck him. Which is an odd distinction here. Yeah, so I think, I don't know, this is a movie maybe to seek out if you're interested in film history, film censorship history. Production design. uh Uh-huh. Like that sort of disjointed visual style. Yeah, the sets are amazing, and they do do amazing things to the story. Mm Mm-hmm. Especially for the 70s when everything had to be practical. It's quite something to look at. Performances in it are good. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're extra. The one witchfinder or exorcist or whatever the fuck. That guy's hilarious. You mean the not, guy with the glasses? Not Lennon? Yeah. John, not... <laughs> I mean. <laughs> there is indeed a great deal here. Yeah. Like, there's a lot to be interested in in this film, but I wouldn't say that I liked it. Yeah. Because there's just also these ramifications and undercurrents and i also i'll be honest the fact that everyone talks about it as an as an untouchable masterpiece gets under my skin a little bit like i think it's a very interesting important film but i don't think it's flawless 
And I think it's important to talk about those flaws while also acknowledging that it has this important place in history and that it's really doing important things and pushing and trying to say something. Mm -hmm. We can hold both of these thoughts. Because it is engaged in this aggressive social satire. Mm -hmm. And it is talking about hypocrisy and, and misogyny and the way this violence against these women is being mobilized for a political end and that they will just be abandoned at the end. But... You were also complicit in more further violence in creating your film about violence against women. Womp womp. This has been fun. We it's we don't do these too often because it's frankly exhausting. Yeah. But they're all they always feel really good to do when they come around. Yeah. It it, it is very intimidating talking about some a work like this. I hope, children, that you have learned a thing this day. And if you liked this episode, you can find more from us by looking up SoundCloud or your podcatcher of choice and searching Trash and Treasures. If you if you are on iTunes and you want to leave us a five-star rating or review, it helps people find us, makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside. If you want to email us, we are at trashtreasurespod at gmail.com. We love to get mail. And we are also on social media. We are on Tumblr at trashandtreasurespod.tumblr.com. And we are on Twitter at TrashPod. Come say hi to us. We'll give you a shout out on the show. This time around, shout out to at Silbmaerto, who is apparently doing a big reanimator rewatch. I'm so happy for them. <laughs> Hell yes, that's a fun time. A fun time that is also highly misogynistic. Yeah. Speaking of, yeah, speaking. speaking of works that are extremely misogynist. So next time we will be returning to the world of Smallville. Our next proper Trash and Treasures episode will actually be another commission episode. Woo. And also very intimidating. People will oh, be mad at us again. People are going to be mad at us for that one. <laughs> yeah, somebody, uh, well, good news, listeners at home. Someone commissioned us to talk about Star Trek 2009. <laughs> <laughs> so we're looking forward to doing that for you, Rasheen. We we really are. We are, Rasheen. You've you set us an interesting challenge. So that will be start of December, I believe. Yep. After some more Go Crows and Drunk Book Club. So be safe. Take care of yourselves. Don't fall to the plague. And don't go crazy while cloistered. Bye, y'all. 